Welcome to Morning Commute, navigating the new treatment landscape in Alzheimer's disease. In this episode, Untying the Beta Amyloid Knots in Alzheimer's Disease, Dr. Marwan Sabah and Dr. Richard Isaacson talk about some of the newer treatments for this disease, especially anti-beta amyloid antibody treatments. Morning Commute is developed by Projects and Knowledge, powered by Kaplan, and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from Lilly. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash Alzheimer's 2. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Sabah is Vice Chairman for Research in the Department of Neurology at Barrow Neurological Institute in Phoenix, Arizona. Dr. Isaacson is a preventive neurologist at the Institute for Neurodegenerative Diseases in Boca Raton, Florida. I am your host, Candace Hoffman. Dr. Sabah will begin our discussion. And welcome. Uh, this is uh, a podcast on tying the beta amyloid knots in Alzheimer's disease. I'm Dr. Marwan Sabah, Professor of Neurology and Vice Chair for Research at the Barrow Neurological Institute. Joining me today is Dr. Richard Isaacson, Welcome back, Dr. Isaacson. If you could introduce yourself again. Sure. Thanks so much for having me. I'm uh, Dr. Richard Isaacson, a preventive neurologist at the Institute for Neurodegenerative Diseases in Florida, uh, focus on uh, the treatment of early uh, Alzheimer's dementia, MCI, and earlier preclinical Alzheimer's disease and uh, risk reduction for people at risk. Uh, I look forward to the discussion today. We have a lot to talk about. So yes, we do. Uh, carry on. So once we have a diagnosis, our patients are now looking for treatments. Until recently, all we had were symptomatic treatments to offer them, but things are looking much more substantive in terms of the first gen of disease-modifying treatments. So the first thing I want to do before we uh, uh, get to the DMTs is really uh, talk, uh, and we're going to spend a lot of time talking about efficacy, safety, outcomes, all that stuff. Can you tell me about the symptomatic approach that has been the dominant uh, approach for the last two decades until the last year or two? Yeah. So, you know, with Alzheimer's disease, I think there's always been this uh, kind of what we call therapeutic nihilism, um, where people with Alzheimer's dementia come in. And I think a lot of doctors, I, I hesitate to even say possibly close to the majority of doctors, um, just feel like there's nothing that you can do, nothing that can be done, and the drugs don't really work. And Oh, they have side effects and that kind of thing. And I, I just, what I would first say is that um, nowadays, I don't believe that's true at all. Um, there's certainly risk benefits and side effect profiles and adverse events that we have to consider. But I really feel that, that the totality is over, totality of evidence is overwhelming that, that we can do something uh, for people when they're diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, dementia, as well as, you know, most recently mild cognitive impairment due to Alzheimer's disease. So, um, Years ago, you know, for 20 years or more, 25, 30 years almost, actually, yeah, almost 30 years, uh, there have been drugs on the market for Alzheimer's disease. Now, the initial drug that came out was a cholinesterase inhibitor drug. It caused some side effects, no longer on the market. But there are three cholinesterase inhibitor drugs that are available today. Um, they are symptomatic therapies. They're not miracle drugs. Um, but, you know, in, in, in patients, when they're used appropriately and, and and when patients are counseled you know for example uh, with with uh, denepazil galantamine rivastigmine when these these medicines are given with food uh you know in a in a very specific way 
titrated slowly over time. You know, Rome wasn't built in a day, as my mom would say. When these drugs are used in a, you know, real standard, safe way, um, the efficacy, I believe, is there. The totality of evidence suggests over 100 research studies have, have looked at cholinesterase inhibitors to show that there are some degree of benefits. Again, not miracle drugs. So what I would just first like to say is um, we shouldn't forget about the symptomatic therapies in Alzheimer's disease. We do have disease-modifying drugs in the market now. We're going to spend time talking about those. But, you know, to me, combination therapy in Alzheimer's disease is where it's at. You know, we have symptomatic therapies. We have uh, also an NMDA antagonist medication that's uh, memantine, FDA-approved for moderate to severe Alzheimer's disease. Uh, we have, you know, two, uh, possibly soon three, FDA-approved disease-modifying therapies for um, Alzheimer's disease, mild cognitive impairment due to Alzheimer's as well as early Alzheimer's disease dementia. Um, and, you know, these drugs in the right person can be used in combination. And this is just the beginning. We're going to eventually have a lot of tools in our toolbox um, to fight this condition. And, you know, the, the, the topic here is untying the beta amyloid knots, and that's critical. And we're, we're there. We can do that now, which is kind of amazing. We couldn't do that several years ago in clinical practice. Uh, but we're going to need much more than that to truly, um, you know, break the cycle. And, and uh, you know, Marwan, I think I've quoted you and I've given you credit. Um, people that take these drugs, if we expect that people get less worse, that's a good thing. Um, are people going to get better? Are we are we at a, are we still at the? Are we, can we talk about cures? Well, no, we can't talk about that. But in the future, hopefully, we'll have a drug against tau and a drug against this mechanism and that mechanism. And neuroinflammation is really exciting, and maybe mitochondrial dysfunction and oxidative stress and trem two pathway. I mean, there's so many things that. Uh, our field is going to focus on. So I just wanted to set the stage by talking about that. Now I'm actually going to answer your question. Um, you know, when it comes to acetylcholinesterase inhibitors, um, you know, Dinepazil is available as a pill. It's available as a patch. Uh, there's, uh, you know, five milligrams is the minimal therapeutic dose. People usually start at five milligrams a day with food. I tend to use the term uh, with breakfast or or lunch, whichever meal is larger. Package insert actually says to give at night. I'd be interested in your perspective here. At night is maybe helpful because it's dinner and which is a larger meal, but about 5% of the time I give it at night, I can sometimes have people with some vivid dreams or nightmares. So I tend to give it with breakfast or lunch, whichever meal is larger. After a month, depending on the person, depending on their weight, if they tolerate it, I can go up to 10 milligrams. Uh, and that's kind of usually where I sit with the Nepazil, although there are, are larger doses available. Um, galantamine is something um, used on occasion. There's an extended release version uh, that can be taken once a day. Uh, also recommend with food and slowly titrating up in three different doses. And then rivastigmine is available as pills, slow dose up to a higher dose starting at 1.5 potentially once a day, then to twice a day, then slowly titrating up to six milligrams twice a day. And, and then there's the rivastigmine patch, which is something I, I tend to actually use quite a bit. I uh, may not just have, um, you know, acetylcholinesterase uh, inhibitor properties, but also butylcholinesterase inhibitor properties. And it's also the only FDA-approved drug uh, for, um, you know, not Alzheimer's disease, uh, but Parkinson's disease, dementia. And, and, and I've seen, you know, uh, some success there too. So um, whichever, you know, option du jour that you choose, um, whether it's a patch or a pill or this or that, um, you know, I, I really believe in, in, you know, start low, go slow, and, and don't forget about these drugs. After a person with mild Alzheimer's disease dementia is on a cholinesterase inhibitor and progresses to the moderate to severe stage of the disease, 
adding memantine, starting at five milligrams a day, increasing to five twice a day, and then slowly titrating up to 10 milligrams twice a day. Um, you know, these drugs, again, not miracle drugs, but there are, there are research out there. The home study showed improvements in, you know, neuropsychiatric uh, outcomes with, with uh, denepazil. Um, we also have you know, combination drug therapy with memantine and, and cholinesterase inhibitors to delay nursing home placement. And these drugs are generic, cheap. If we can delay nursing home placement by six months, a year, year and a half, who knows? Like that is just worth its weight in gold. And, and any little degree of quality with the family is, and, and patient uh, quality of life is, is critical. That's very comprehensive. I don't have much more to add in the symptomatic. My only comment would be is that symptomatic drugs, I find I when I talk to my patients and counsel them, I say, you know, it's kind of like uh, taking acetaminophen for knee pain. It doesn't take away the arthritis, but it might take away the knee pain. Uh, Colonestrin inhibitors and memantine might help improve the symptoms, but doesn't take away the underlying process. But I still want to lead with a colonestrin inhibitor because I think that it's adjunct uh, to the DMTs. I don't think it's a one or the other. I should never put a binary approach of you either take a DMT or a symptomatic drug. You start with the symptomatic drug because it helps improve the symptoms, but the DMT slows the rate of progression. So with that in mind, let's jump into the disease-modifying therapies. There are one approved and many to talk about. Uh, can you uh, first talk about the not the current one, lecanemab? I want to spend a little bit talking about aducanumab. And uh, I'll jump in and tell you that, you know, People have strong opinions about aducanumab, positive and negative, mostly negative. Uh, but uh, I want to give you the story of aducanumab. It's the, uh, that really helped me to persuade me uh, in a positive way. Number one is that aducanumab was the first one to show what's called directional concordance. It's the first drug ever to show that in post-dose dependent manner, the higher the dose, the more slowing the rate of decline, the more amyloid was removed. Uh, number two is uh, they went. Uh, they published that paper in in uh, Nature. As you know, that's next to impossible to publish any clinical paper in Nature. So peer-reviewed science, and that's what propelled them into their phase three trial, the Emergent and Gate studies, which were unfortunately self-inflicted wound, read out as negative, uh, hitting futility endpoints in early 2019, and then undoing the futility endpoints. In later 2019, I think people formed opinions. One positive subsequently emerged, uh, was a positive study met its pre-specified endpoint, engaged with met its, did not meet its pre-specified endpoint. And so it was a mixed result. And uh, the external advisory committee advised against its approval, but the, the uh, FDA overruled them. And then the controversy started. Uh, I have never had any patient clinically, meaning in clinical practice, anacanumab. I have one patient who is in the eMERGE study and then all the subsequent open label extension. She's seven years on aducanumab and has shown almost no progression. So that's my only end of one of a patient who got aducanumab early. I CSF diagnose her, I manage her myself, and she has not progressed. She's still in the MCI stage seven years later. So I've seen in an end of one, one positive result. Do you have any comments or experience about aducanumab before we get into lecanemab, denanumab, and all the others? Wow. Well, I've never had more experience in something than Dr. Marwan Sabah. So I'm <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna take the, the the floor here. Where's the soapbox? I'm gonna I'm gonna bring <laughs> the soapbox up. So yeah, actually, uh, we were really early adopters um, with aducanumab. Um, you know, our patients are so 
uh, closely and well characterized. Um, we had like a literally a line uh, ready, um, you know, because I really believe that in the right patient at the right dose and for the right duration, um, these drugs can really be effective. But but there's a kind of a matchmaking process that needs to happen. I'm not a one size fits all kind of person in this in this regard. And and yeah, no, I have patients on aducanumab, um, which I can actually tell you some, several n of one examples. Um, but um, we have a, a different approach to aducanumab. I have actually never personally gone higher than seven milligrams per kilogram on the dose. Um, for me, uh, and, and yes, there's a lot of controversy and the study this and the study that. And when you put all that together, I understand that. But I don't care about controversy. I care about the patient sitting in front of me. And when I have a patient in the MCI-ish stage, uh, you know, with children, you know, young children uh, that, you know, I need to keep this person around and healthy and, and as brain healthy as possible um, as their children, you know, progress um, through elementary school and onward. Um, you know, you take a different, um, you know, tact, I think, than, than just thinking about confusing research trials. So, you know, we have a lot of patients that have that have used aducanumab, um, at least uh, one that's been on it for over two years, I, I feel like maybe, or maybe close to two years, I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm doing the math right, uh, definitely 18 months, we have the 18 month time point. Uh, but the person that's been on us the longest is uh, in his 50s, APOE4 positive guy. Um, and, um, you know, we uh, did all the things, we tracked MRIs, we did baseline PET scan, we did baseline spinal fluid testing, uh, you know, clearly met criteria both cognitively uh, as well as, um, you know, biomarker wise uh, for, for Alzheimer's disease, mild cognitive impairment due to Alzheimer's. And, you know, we track patients pretty closely. We do blood-based biomarkers on patients um, longitudinally in our biorepository studies. So we have a plethora of data on, on this guy. And, uh, you know, 18 months later, we've never gone above six milligrams per kilogram in him. He's E3-4, so okay, a little higher risk for side effects, but um, he has now cleared um, both, uh, sorry, at the 18-month time, he's cleared amyloid from his PET scan. Uh, he has normalized his amyloid on his spinal tap. He still had a little bit of tau. Uh, and uh, interestingly, since we've been following his um, P-tau-217 in, uh, in his blood, you know, frozen blood samples on him the whole time, uh, he has incrementally um, improved, uh, not not fully cleared, but but improved significantly. Uh, P tau two seventeen uh, in that year and a half time frame. Um, in terms of cognition, uh, he is absolutely not worse, um, and he's actually a tiny little bit better. Uh, he's still borderline in the MCI range. Um, uh, you know, he has a job. He does things in you know public. Uh, people don't really notice. Maybe they think he's sleep deprived, or you know, it's his kids keeping him up at night. Uh, but he's not worse. He's, uh, if anything, a little better. Um, and, you know, we have experience to suggest in, in not just him, but in, in a variety of cases that we can reach target engagement. Um, it did take a while. Um, we did something differently. We did one milligram per kilogram per month for two months, then two milligrams per kilogram a month for two months, then three milligrams per kilogram for two months. And, and we're doing MRIs, you know, more frequently, you know, pretty frequently. Um, so I think what I'm trying to say with aducanumab is we use aducanumab as our uh, learning um, uh, pilot for patients. And because we were learning and we wanted to do no harm, we also um, did MRI uh, scanning more frequently and we use lower dosing. So to me, I, I feel like aducanumab uh, can be an effective dose, uh, an effective drug. However, um, I haven't started anyone new on aducanumab since lecanumab uh, was released. Yeah, so I mean, clearly, uh, aducanumab has not been fully reimbursed. So I, effectively, I've stopped using it. I never used it really in clinical practice. Uh, that said, I have a seven, a sixteen patients on lecanumab 
uh, and have had pretty good success doing the biomarker pathway. So my my experience with lecanemab is all these patients, as we talked about in the last podcast, biomarker confirmed CSF or PET, got their APOE genotyping, and I have one patient now eight months uh, post uh, uh, accelerated approval on it. Uh, as you all know, lecanemab got full approval in July. You have to do the CMS.gov website. We have built uh, our dot phrases in house, which reflects the CMS. You know the the MCI, the APOE, the MRI, the uh, confirmation of the amyloid status, et cetera. And so we find it to be as less less problematic. Although our PNT committee has just approved it, we've been doing all of our infusions in the community and not as an institution. Uh, so I will tell you that it was it's been challenging. There's uh, you know we're, we built the widget, but it has not been insurmountable in its challenge. Uh, what's your experience with lecanemab so far? Yeah, I think we got some of the kinks out in the system, and you know, with with using aducanemab on on you know several, I would say a couple dozen patients. Um, when when we started using lecanemab, I think it was a little smoother because of that. I think the the, the challenge is you know every other week is a little different. Also, the dosing um, we were a little more liberal with the dosing, but also a little more conservative initially. Um, but lecanemab's been um, you know okay for us to use. Um, we do have a, a lot of patients that were very willing and open to pay for the aducanumab, and thus they were willing to pay for the lecanumab. A small number of patients can afford it, but some do. Um, so we've been um, we've been okay, um, and um, I don't have the breadth of experience in terms of you know one year, eighteen month data, uh, you know repeat PET scans or repeat spinal taps. But we do track blood-based biomarkers, and we have shown you know in, in the in the shortest interval that we've checked, we've actually shown uh, improvements in serum amyloid. Um, within three months on lecanemab, and that's on a pretty low dose. It's, um, it's going to sound a little shocking, but three milligrams uh, per kilogram rather than the max dose of 10, we, we went really low because he was uh, an APOE 4-4 carrier. So um, I guess what I'm trying to say is, we're, this is these are early days, you know, N of 1 or 5 or 10 or 15 or 20 or 50 isn't really enough to make, you know, certain conclusions, obviously, but we're learning a lot, um, and it's it's been, it's been an adventure. So I have to tell you, I've had two, I think we'll talk about Ari in the next podcast because we have to talk about monitoring and surveillance, but so far so good. Uh, what has changed, of course, is that we now kind of built the widget so that we are doing the biomarker screening relatively quickly and get them into the chair. So that that has changed. That has been a significant change in our practice. We were going much quicker to biomarker confirmation and selecting patients uh, appropriately for the monoclonal antibodies. So uh, as you know, so that came out, Clarity came out a year ago this week. Uh, the Clarity AD was published in New England Journal of Medicine, showing that on the CDR, some of the boxes it slowed the rate of decline by 27%, uh, removed amyloid uh, up to 80 to 90%, uh, and that the, um, and that the uh, patients slowed the rate of decline on the ADCS ADL up to 40%. So pretty stable, uh, robust efficacy signals. Uh, and since then, of course, as you know, the Trailblazer ALZ2 data published on July uh, 17th, 2023, talked about the Denanenab effect. And they clear, uh, the two things you need to, uh, we should, uh, this audience needs to know is that the Clarity AD baseline uh, had a 75 centiloids of amyloid. Trailblazer actually had 100 centiloids on amyloid but seems to remove amyloid very, very aggressively. 
has not been approved yet. We thought it was going to be reviewed and approved in December, but it looks like it'll be early 2024. So a lot of us don't have a lot of experience with Dunaninab yet, uh, uh, but it removes amyloid, does it very dynamically. The targets are slightly different. Lacanumab looks at the uh, protofibrillar forms of amyloid and binds to that, whereas the uh, Dunaninab uh, uh, binds the pyroglutamated epitope of the amyloid. So anything you want to add to that, uh, Dr. Isaacson? So, you know, the, the denanumab trial, I think, is interesting because it's the first time that we've um, looked at low amounts of tau, low moderate amounts of tau, moderate amounts of tau. And, you know, understanding that Alzheimer's disease pathology develops over decades and that it's this kind of sequential amyloid then tau path, um, I think where our field needs to go is really fine-tuning you know, when to intervene and what the differential effectiveness will be with these anti-amyloid drugs based on those levels of tau. And I think that the thing that really excited me about, um, you know, the denanumab and trailblazer work is that now we have some objective data. We're not guessing anymore. Um, I can tell you from clinical experience and, and of, you know, a couple dozen, we're not talking about a lot here. Um, when you use these, anti, when we have used these anti-amyloid drugs earlier in the MCI phase, rather than in the earlier dementia phase, there is a difference. I, I I perceive a difference, and again, this is a clinical judgment. This is, you know, but 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 the data also support that. That uh, you know, I, I believe that the data suggest earlier in the disease course um, can potentially have preferential effects. Um, so, using better biomarkers to characterize these earlier versus later stages, I think, is really critical. And I think our field will be using deploying these at some point. I'm not sure what the FDA will say about this, and I'm not sure how that may affect the package insert and, and who knows what, but I think it's a, a part of the story. I agree. And I, you know, we might select uh, lacanumab eligible patients different from denanumab eligible patients, but the fundamental issue is that both of them remove amyloid. They do it aggressively and robustly. And the totality of the data suggests that you have to remove amyloid aggressively, quickly, robustly to get your senoloid levels below 25 senoloids to show clinical efficacy signals. Because after you get your senoloids low, meaning you've cleared amyloid, that's when you see the phosphorylated tau levels start to fall. And the clinical efficacy might be a clinical a proxy estimate of the uh, lowering of phosphorylated tau, not as a direct amyloid removal. We can speculate as much as we want on this. Uh, I do uh, want to talk about the fact that, you know, we now have think the amyloid hypothesis has been proven, aducanumab, lacanumab, denanumab, that removing amyloid is a good idea. Uh, people have asked, uh, does that make any sense? But when you look at drugs like uh, trontinumab and uh, remteritug, uh, those are drugs that work a little differently. Uh, do you want to comment on those or shall I take it, take it from there? Um, I, uh, finally had more experience than, than you in something, and that was aducanumab use in clinical practice, but this is your bag. So okay. Dr. Sabah. Trontinumab is a, uh, what has now been known as brain shuttle gantanerumab. The problem with the monoclonal antibodies is they're large proteins. They're very, very large proteins. And because of that, they don't cross the blood brain barrier. Uh, so, uh, facilitated transport mechanisms have been looked at. And this is a uh, as a protein assisted uh, mechanism. Trontinumab. Uh, some people have even looked at focused ultrasound as a possibility. But the point is, the facilitated access of the monoclonal into the CNS is what trontinumab does. 
shows that it removes amyloid and it does it like gangbusters and uh, it does it very quickly. So we know now when you look at trontinumab and you look at remtemrintug, you're now seeing the fundamental issue is that we have to remove amyloid. We have to do it aggressively. We have to remove it to an absolute cut point below 25 centiloids. And the, now the debate is going to be more about the slope and the trajectory of the removal than it is on whether it makes sense to do that or not. And so I just want to tell you that those two have gotten a lot of attention in the last few months. Also has gotten a lot of attention is the Acumen ACU 9393 and PRX012, which are uh, also focused uh, selective monoclonal antibodies. Uh, both of them have an advantage of being a subcutaneous formulation, which could be a very huge advantage in clinical work, uh, in the clinical practice. Lacanumab will also move to a subcutaneous self-injecting form in 2024. So what I'm saying is that we see a lot of excitement with these new drugs that are being developed. The only uh, one that's not uh, heavy on the monoclonal antibody is blarcomycin. Uh, blarcomycin is a drug that selects the sigma-1 receptor, and the sigma-1 receptor has it's an oral medication, not a sub-Q, not IV, but has shown an efficacy signal that is uh, going to be reported out in a major journal in the next few months. But very exciting. It has a positive effects on cognition, and it slows the the neurodegeneration aspects as seen on MRI. So the point is, is that we know, I think the amyloid hypothesis prevails. I think that we can reasonably say that removing amyloid makes sense, maybe through a secondary mechanism of action, meaning that the removal of amyloid slows the uh, cognition by lowering tau, but we do know we need to remove it aggressively and we need to move it to an absolute level, uh, a low level, uh, and that we're now seeing consistency in signals that have been seen in the second generation of monoclonals that were not seen in first generation monoclonals. Uh, we didn't get to really talk a lot about solanezumab. Uh, the only thing I want to say about solanezumab is it didn't work in the therapeutic trials. It didn't work in the primary prevention trial uh, known as the A4 study, but it does show one important point is that amyloid load did predict clinical progression. So that is one of the takeaways of the solanezumab trial. The other thing we got away from the solanezumab trial is that we have selectivity of the amyloid target is relevant. So anything that is an oligomer, protofibrofibril, or plaque makes sense. Anything above an oligomer, meaning a monomer or dimer, does not make sense. That is the one takeaway we got from the solanezumab trial. And with that, I want to thank you all for listening. I hope uh, this was a, a productive uh, and uh, thought-provoking conversation. Remember, to receive your credit and evaluate this program, please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash Alzheimer's 2. You can find all of the episodes in this series and all of our other podcasts on your favorite podcast streaming service or download our Morning Commute app. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you.